Philippians chapter 2 from verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Okay, it's a real pleasure and quite an honour to uh, be here with you this morning and, and sharing from God's Word. As Ken mentioned, this is my first time to do it here at Tonsley, and it's the first time I've done it in a while, uh, so I am quite nervous, uh, but I have been praying, and I thank you very much for the prayers of many of you out there uh, to help me through today. As you would have learnt from my introduction, my name is Aaron, uh, and most of you would know me by that name, uh, but around 20 years ago, when I was still an electrical apprentice, I earned an ignominious name, Bones. Uh, as is often the case of nicknames in Australia, this nickname Bones was shortened from a much longer name, and that was Bonehead. You see, I wasn't always a very good apprentice. Uh, I blew up numerous pieces of equipment that I connected incorrectly. Uh, I'd often get on the bus to leave site and go home and I'd forgotten that I had my boss's car keys in my pocket so he couldn't go home. Uh, I got numerous electric shocks. Uh, I once forgot to hitch the trailer properly to the work van and it fell off at Murray Bridge. And I fell through a customer's ceiling <laughs> twice. <laughs> I definitely earned that name. Uh, but 20 years has el elapsed since those days, and no one I currently work with knows that name, Bones. Uh, it's not because I no longer make mistakes, that's, that still happens, uh, but I do make less of them, and they're not as stupid. Uh, and as I look back, I'm thankful that uh, I've come a long way since those days as a first-year apprentice. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be working on Navy ships now if I hadn't. Can you imagine Bones in the Navy? I wouldn't like it. This, I hope, is a helpful story in describing discipleship and growth. I want to parallel apprenticeships and discipleship. And why do we need to think about growth as a Christian disciple? It's because we all started at quite a low point, didn't we? 
we were all falling short. We were all in need of saving. But this is not the end. It's not God's intention to leave us at that low point. It is his intention to mature us as disciples. And today's passage makes it clear that we, as a church, should be all about this spiritual growth, both individually and collectively in community. You should be not dismayed about your current level of Christian maturity, if that's you, if you're a young believer. There is hope. Nor should you be comfortable if you've been following Jesus for many years. We are not called to be mediocre. Indeed, as we'll see, it's quite the opposite. If you're here just checking out who Jesus is and what church is all about, we welcome you. We're really glad you're here. And what I want to show and explain today through these verses that were read out to us is that what we enter into, this spiritual growth as a community, is something wonderful and is one of the most fulfilling parts of our life. Our passage today fits right into this key theme that Paul has been working on throughout this book to the Philippians. He starts this theme of spiritual growth right back in chapter 1 that we went through a few weeks back. And in verse 6, if you want to follow in your Bibles in front of you, in chapter 1, verse 6, he writes, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What I want to do today is talk through the passage and show how Paul is calling us all to play our part in what God is already doing. We should not only to look to grow ourselves, though that is important, but to help each other grow as well. The true fulfilment of church community is when we do this together, not being proud of our own achievements, but by being more concerned for the interests of others. As we look at this growth, we'll look at the why, we'll look at the how, and we'll look at the manner in which this is done. And these three points are in your outline today if you're using that to follow along. So let's dive into the passage and we'll go slowly through the first seven verses where the real meat of this concept is. We start with, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Paul is straight up calling on the church to continue to obey. He recognised that they had been good at their obedience when he was with them, and now he's expecting and commanding them to continue on in that obedience now that he can no longer be with them. This is like the first brick that he's laying in a wall that is being built as he builds this argument or concept to the church. We are not only to be obedient in our initial repentance and response to Christ, not only when we turned in faith, but this obedience is expected to continue, is what Paul is saying. Do not get comfortable. Paul is saying, I may not be there, but your obedience is expected to continue. By extension, this is what Paul is also saying to us today as a church at Tonsley. Continue in what you have begun. So Paul is writing to a church here. He's not writing to an individual. He's writing to a community and he's asking a community to continue. He's, he's urging them all collectively to be obedient in continuing to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now I'm going to really slow things down because I want to make sure that we understand these next verses correctly. This concept of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I'll start by saying what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying work for your salvation and be fearful that you may not achieve it. Let's be clear on that straight up. 
even though we have these words work and fear, we should not understand it in that way. Almost all English translations that I looked up do use that term, however, work out. But we should never read this as saying that salvation can be earned through works. One way I think it's helpful to think about it is to say, instead of work out, live out your salvation. This does help, I think, to convey the notion that we are responding to what Christ has done. Because of the salvation we have received, live out the reality of that being that notion of being saved. But I think that is also limited in a sense because live out is perhaps too passive for what Paul is communicating here. Paul uses this term work out a number of times in his other letters. And uh, as I looked into his other examples of that, it gave me a sense, a better sense of what he was really trying to communicate in that deliberate choice. So synonyms of work out in English could be uh, achieve, perform, accomplish, or fulfill. So if we restate what Paul is saying, substituting those words in, an example could be continue to achieve or continue to fulfill your salvation. These synonyms all infer a combination of will and action. For we don't achieve anything without first desiring to do it. And nor do we ever actually accomplish a goal if we don't maintain that desire to see it through to the end. We'd run out of steam. So work out in this sense needs to be understood firstly as being uh, made up of a combination of motivation and action towards our salvation. Secondly, though, there is also an implicit notion of responsibility in the term workout. No one is engaged to work as an employee without the expectation of fulfilling those tasks that your employer wants you to be employed to do. None of us can rock up on Monday and fail to actually do anything when we're at work. This is a moral responsibility, isn't it, for us as employees, that we don't slack off at work, that we don't freeload off the work of others in the company. And that is the responsibility that Paul is expressing here for us as disciples too. We have a responsibility to work on our salvation, to work out our salvation, I should say. So in all of these senses, work out fits really well. And I now understand why it's the most common translation. We are not to be passive in our new saved lives. There is to be a responsibility and purpose and action to our lives. There is to be no resting on our salvation, similar to the way we might be tempted to find a quiet job in our later years and wait out our retirement. We're talking about continued obedience to the highest calling of our lives. This is not to earn anything, but to fulfill and to continue the good work that has already been started in us. So that's the workout. I hope there wasn't too much of a mental workout, excuse the pun, on this cold Sunday morning, because we are still warming up. There's plenty more to go. Paul writes, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, I'm going to start with saying what this is not saying. We are not to live in fear that this won't be achieved. It's worth remembering that this command to obey that Paul is giving us is right off the back of the description that we looked at last week of Christ's humility. Cam did an excellent job of taking us through the church's response to Christ last week. Jesus humbled himself and was obedient even to death. With Christ's humility as our lens, looking at this passage, fear and trembling, therefore, should be understood to describe 
a healthy reverence and humility for how we are to purposefully live out our saved lives. This is because of who God is in his character and in his power. His goodness deserves honour and his power demands awe. I'll give you an example from my life. There's a saying in electrical theory that electricity is a fine servant but a terrible master. Now, as I said at the beginning, I've been shocked and survived, thankfully, a number of times. Uh, However, I've seen electrical explosions blow apart switchboards and vaporise steel and copper into balls of plasma. And uh, seeing that power in its after effect certainly brings awe. And I've tragically known a person who was electrocuted and killed. For me, the saying, once bitten, twice shy, twice bitten, forever shy, has had an addition put onto it, which is thrice bitten, live in fear and trembling. I don't have a morbid dread of electricity that prevents me in my ability to continue to work, but I certainly have an awe and respect. Uh, This is because of both the character and power of electricity. It may be powerful, but it's not a good master. It's out of control when we let it. Yet electricity is only a creation of our God. He is a good master, the best master to serve. He is also the all-powerful creator of this whole universe. We should not forget to give him the awe that he deserves. We should let ourselves be blown away by his power and majesty. Fear and trembling of God in that concept is appropriate. For by his goodness, he decided to save us. That is his character. And by his power, he is making that salvation complete. It is worthy of humility and respect. So let's bring those two concepts together. Therefore, my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To summarise, Paul is calling us, us as a church, to continued obedience. We are to take on the responsibility to continue the work of Christ in our lives with purpose, action, awe and humility. This is all based upon who Christ is and what he has already done. This may be feeling heavy, I'm sure. Paul is actually calling us to something very big here. It's massive. But let's keep going and look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. What a relief. (laughs) I find it a relief. It is God that gives us the ability to work out our salvation. This is because it is he that gives us the desire, that is the will, and the ability to act. This is a big task. We are not up to it, but God is. In relief, we can let God shoulder the heavy lifting. In fear and trembling, we can know that he's good for it. Be obedient in working out your salvation because it is God who is at work in you. This is the logical point that Paul is making, because of God. As a community, as a church, we should be getting right around this idea because it is God who is doing it. This is not some ill-conceived government initiative that will under-deliver at the end. Nor is it like a social media influencer who's promising the world, but really it's only to sell this supplement product. Because it is God, we know that it is worth being obedient to. 
because it will be carried out to completion. Consider this example. This is what I've come up with. What if at work your boss made you an offer? Your boss wanted you to help them build a house to their specifications. But maybe it's less of a house and more of a mansion. This is going to be a big deal. Your boss in his offer or in their offer will pay you throughout the build plus pay a bonus at the end of the project. The bonus will be large enough to pay off all of your debts, whether you've got a mortgage debt, hex debt, credit card, personal loan. This bonus will cover it. But not only cover it, the excess that's remainder will be invested and the income that you'll earn yearly from that investment for the rest of your life will be equivalent to whatever your boss is earning now and it will be indexed to inflation. Seems like a pretty good deal. Do you feel motivated? Perhaps. But maybe you're thinking, you don't really know much about building houses. You've never worked in the construction industry. How can your boss offer you so much when you don't have the ability for achieving it? But then your boss goes on. To achieve this desired outcome, your boss will also give you the following. You'll get the full design of the house with all the specifications of materials, fittings and furnishings. So there's no doubt about what this is going to end up looking like. You don't have to make decisions. You'll get a reliable and honest project manager. The same with a builder and all of the trades and they'll all be organised for you. They'll already be committed to work into the schedule and you won't have any material delays or people not rocking up when they're supposed to. Your job, as it turns out, will be just to go to site each day, have the morning meeting, be a part of the team and then report some progress up to the boss as needed. If any issues do pop up, you can call your boss anytime and they'll be available to talk you through how to resolve the issue. But mostly, you'll just be there to trust that the design is compliant, the trades will be professional, and your boss has got the bill covered. And then at the end, they throw in that you get to live in this house as well. Perhaps this is a limited example relevant to me who's worked in the construction industry. But what I'm trying to explain is that your boss is offering you both the motivation and the means to achieve the desired goal. They've got the lot. Why would you not take up this offer? The outcome is definitely desirable, even though the outcome is outside of our ability, but it all becomes attainable because what your boss has built into the offer. This is what Paul is communicating here too. Because God is offering us so much, how can we not be compelled to get involved with what he's doing? Salvation is being offered. Eternity living in God's house is the end game. God provides us with the motivation and the ability to get there. Let's not be complacent then in our growth or sceptical that it could ever happen in our lives. We're not alone in this endeavour. How good is this? Obedience then is no longer a burden in such circumstances. For this is God's good purpose. This is all about his will, his pleasure. Because he is so good, we will enjoy this too. How wonderful is it to consider that as we are called to obey God, he enables us to be good at what he's asking us to do. He truly is a good master, worthy for us to follow as disciples. I realise that as we've been following these verses as they were read out to us, that I've been focusing on the why of obedience and the how it is achieved, but not much on the what of obedience. So what is it exactly that Paul is asking us to be obedient to? It's worth us understanding that. What does working out our salvation really look like? And I'd like to draw you back to the very first word of today's reading. We started it with therefore. Now, I remember when I was in youth group 
and my youth uh, pastor always taught us, and it stuck in my head, that whenever you see a therefore, you should ask, what is it there for? It's therefore to link what is about to be said back to what has already been said earlier. All of today's passage goes back to last week's reading that Cam led us through. If you want to go back there, we can go back to chapter 2, verse 2, where we're being asked by Paul to be obedient to something quite high. Paul says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ. And then he gives us that wonderful hymn describing the identity and the humility of Christ. This is what living as saved disciples looks like. Everything that Paul just wrote and everything that Cam went through last week. I won't go more into this because Cam did an excellent job last week. And if you're just joining us today or you missed last week, then I recommend you do go back and you listen to that sermon, which is recorded on our church website. But being obedient to this is what we've been called to do, this lofty standard. And it's certainly a standard that we need God's empowering spirit to even attempt. But we'll move on. All of this, this week's passage and last week's passage, is to be understood in the context that Paul is writing to the church. The audience in every part of these verses is plural. From today's reading, my dear friends, it's obvious, friends is plural, but the you and the your is plural each time as well. You are all to work out your communal salvation. For it is God who works in us as a church. We are being commanded to obey and do this together not just on our own. Think back on the previous Sundays where Cam used the example of the phalanx, that military formation which we've got on the slide again today. The phalanx was used as an example of the church standing together in unity. So if we continue to think about that formation and everyone working together, isn't it in our best interests to help all of the others in the formation to be the best that they can be? One person alone does not a formation make. Therefore, do not just focus on doing this yourself, though that is important. We need to be putting the salvation interests of others above our own at times and help each other. There is no benefit if only Cam and the leadership team are growing, they faithfully put time into us as well. The phalanx formation was successful because each person played their own part and stood beside those around them. In a similar way, we should be working out our salvation together. We can think about this practically as a church. I, uh, in both formal and informal ways. Formally, we could take, uh, it could take the form of choosing to attend a growth group each week. I think this is one of the best ways to grow in fellowship uh, by setting aside time each week to study the word with others and to pray for and be prayed for by others. That's what I want to say. But informally... We, this can look like just catching up with people to share fellowship, to encourage them, offering a time to chat, offering meals and other acts of service. Or maybe by approaching someone you respect and asking them to meet with you once a month to talk and learn from them as a more mature Christian. These examples that we'll look at more later 
uh, act to build up the community in the church and encourage us and help us to all grow together. We'll move on now to chapter, uh, verse 14, where Paul writes, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why does Paul suddenly pivot, do you think, to a warning about grumbling and arguing? We've gone from such a high standard, really uh, heady stuff, right back down to the, the sinfulness of people. I think it's because he knows that if we were to attempt to obediently put others first out of our own strength, grumbling and arguing would probably result. It's only by responding to God's work in us to will and to act that we can do all things without grumbling. Of course, there will be times when we're tempted to, nonetheless. If we think about the phalanx again, maybe somebody's armpit's in your face. Or we might get tired standing right at the front and we need to rotate to the back, but there's no one to take our place. There will be times when the reality of doing this salvation life together with other people and their problems and your frailties will be hard, really hard. We might be tempted towards pride that we've got all our stuff together and others don't. Or we might grumble to others that someone else is not pulling their weight with serving on Sundays. But this is not the way to work out our salvation together. Grumbling and arguing tears down. It does not build up. Paul is commanding us to build up, to work together. We need to avoid this behaviour. For it is by avoiding complaining that Paul gives us the greatest encouragement in these next verses. By working together, serving each other, without that complaining, we will be truly distinct and different, shining as stars in the sky. Reading on, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. In this way, we truly stand out as something different and wonderful in the world. This community that Paul is calling us to is amazing. Not a burdensome obedience where we complain and grumble, but something that is attractive and beautiful. The important thing to remember, again, is that Paul is using the plural here, stars. One star might get noticed, but a whole galaxy of stars is hard to ignore, is it not? One person living out their faith is honouring to God. We should all be doing that. But when we do it together, it becomes something greater. This is what makes us unique in a crooked and warped generation. It is by gathering, helping and working together without complaining that we make the greatest difference because that type of community is something extraordinary. How often is that experienced in the world? One or two people in an organisation or club might serve others. But imagine everyone doing it. It's not the norm, is it? That is what the church is being called to be like. Everyone being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. We will not experience this in perfection because the good work is being carried out in us until the day of Christ but it will be as brilliant as stars nonetheless. Kim and I experienced this outward reality of that community in our time with OM, which I uh, spoke about earlier with Cam. Our ministry on the ships was first and foremost a ministry of evangelising the least reached people of the world. But at times this took us to countries where it was illegal under their law to do any sort of overt gospel work. That meant we could not sell Bibles in our bookstore. We could not go out into public and tell people about Jesus. 
We could not even explain what we believed to someone if they asked us about it. To enforce these laws, there was even plain clothed, clothed secret police wandering around the book fair that was open to the public, listening into our conversations to make sure we were complying. If we had have disobeyed those laws, the ship would have been kicked out of the country and would never have been allowed to return. Our ministry of that type in that country would have ended. You may think that under such restrictions, we couldn't shine as God's light into the world. But what we experienced again and again was that the people of the country that was hosting us were observing us as a community. Our community was made up of uh, people from 50 different countries, nearly 400 people, so many different cultural and church backgrounds, but all living imperfectly, but still by God's grace, in one spirit and of one mind. And the people of the local country saw it. They would ask us, how is it possible that you guys can live together in unity like this when we can't even do that in our country? How can we get what you have? They saw the difference. It was as obvious as the Milky Way and they wanted in. That's what we can be as a church in our community as well. We do that though as we hold firmly to the word of life. Now my old NIV, which I learnt is not the same as yours, has a footnote in it that says, the hold firmly can be interpreted two ways. Hold on to as if you are clinging for your life to a life raft to stop you from drowning or to hold out as in offering to somebody else. And this dual meaning, this dual interpretation, I think is beautiful. We are to hold and cling to those words of life, yet hold them out and offer them to people as well. What does this look like? Another example that I want to give you of holding firmly to the words of life. Coming back to my theme of an apprenticeship, one day a week, all of us apprentices would return to TAFE, like here, to undertake our trade school. One day a week for theory, the rest of the week for application. I would learn the theory, electrical theory, that I won't bore you with about volts, amps and ohms. Uh, but most importantly, we'd learn how to read and interpret the AS3000 wiring rules. This is a big book of standards that we had to comply with. And our lecturers would even joke that this is, these were the electrician's Bible. So once a week, we would go and learn from the words out of the wiring rules. Uh, to complete our apprenticeship, we even had to do a three-day, not hour, three-day exam on how to correctly apply those rules before we'd get given our license. Uh, for once we were out on our own, we had to hold firmly to those words or we'd risk injury to ourselves or to our customers. So every good electrician will have a dirty, dog-eared copy of these standards in their work vans. If you get an electrician and they don't have one of these, they're not worth paying. <laughs> they would use them and apply them daily, year after year. This is holding firmly to something, isn't it? We also return to TAFE once a week. I love the uh, confluence of that. But we are taught from the words of life. And the rest of the week, we get to apply what we've learned here on Sunday. So let us hold firm to what we are taught here. Let us hold firm to what we uh, are led by the Spirit in our own quiet times, uh, reading the, uh, the Bible as well. And hold firm to the, the words in our hearts, but hold them out to others in our hands. Clinging to the life raft, but always making space on it for other people to join us. And then Paul goes on. Then I will boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, 
I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Everything that we've just discussed is the goal of the community of Christ that Paul will be proud to see in action. If we live up to this reality, we will achieve our purpose. If we work out our salvation together, Paul will be proud. Here we have the end game from Paul as well. We are to be obedient to this task until death or the day of Christ. So do not get out of this life raft. Do not stop offering it ever to others to get in. The words of life, our salvation, will be completely fulfilled on the day that Christ returns. The path will not be perfect. The work was begun by God. We're all involved in the process, but keep your eyes on the goal, the end, and be encouraged by the future reward. Be glad that you are participating with God, with Paul, and with all believers throughout history in this work. We are in this together. Now, verses 19 to 30, I'm not going to read them out in full. And whilst it seems like quite a gear change from what we've just looked at, I think there are still some important lessons here that we can directly, directly relate back to the first seven verses. Firstly, Paul is expressing his experience of the encouragement of community in verse 19. Paul is in prison, but fellowship with believers is a source of encouragement. He is directly experiencing what he is asking the Philippian church to continue their obedience in. Let us not then underestimate the um, fellowship that we can offer to each other, particularly to those in uh, vocational ministry, leadership in ministry. Our continued obedience and growth in discipleship as a church will most definitely be an encouragement to Cam, our pastor. It'll be an encouragement to Matt Lehman, Paul Harrington at the network level. And it will be an encouragement to our leadership team who are working hard to serve and build us up in areas of church life. Seeing us grow and thrive will validate their work, just as Paul describes of the Philippians. We should not forget the Purdy family in Chile hearing about us growing, nor our partners in Bush Church Aid or ES. How encouraging is it to see the churches they are partnered with are growing and thriving. By our faith and obedience, we encourage our leaders and our partners. Secondly, Paul is using Timothy and Epaphroditus here as examples for which the Philippian church can follow. To follow to help them achieve what Paul was just describing. You can see that in verses 20 and 29 if you're following. Here, Timothy was more concerned with the interests of the church than his own, exactly what Paul has just been asking them to live up to. Epaphroditus nearly died, but rather than seeking sympathy for himself, he was concerned that the Philippian church was worried about him, again, putting other people's interests above his own. Honour people like them, Paul is saying. This is not worship, of course, but an acknowledgement that here is a good example to emulate. The point I want to make here is find such people in your life too. People who are worthy of respect that you can learn from and emulate. The other side of this point, though, is we need those people to be the examples as well. I encourage you to find someone to follow, but I want to encourage you to be somebody that can encourage others as well. Don't feel that you have nothing to give. Each day, week, month and year that we work out our salvation, we are growing. Not by our will, but by Christ who works in us. Even a few years of experience can make a big difference to somebody else in their journey. Just as I am no longer bones, I'm also not the same person I was when I gave my life to Jesus at age 17. And I praise God for that. 
for those of us who have been a disciple for longer, think back on your life and marvel at the progress. Seen in this perspective, it's truly amazing what God has worked out in you, no doubt. Be encouraged from this past experience and then expect more of the same. But make yourself available too. Your lessons can encourage someone else. For those of you who are younger in the faith, maybe you're actually younger in age or you've only just learned who Jesus is and decided to follow him, have hope. There will be much growth in your life. Just look to the people around you who may have been walking for longer and they'll testify to it. This good work continues and it will be taken all the way to completion. Thirdly, from these last verses, Paul also reveals that he is blessed by the time he has taken to lead Timothy and Epaphroditus. We see that in verse 22, 25 and 27. Working together for salvation is a two-way street. Paul gave and received with his relationship with Timothy and Epaphroditus. If you feel that you don't have much to give, consider that you will also be blessed and learnt and learn by the time spent with a younger disciple. Maybe you feel, though, that you don't have the capacity to give at this time. And I want to encourage you to say, that's okay. An effective community will adapt to the needs and abilities of the members of the community. There will be times where you can give and there'll be times where you can't. But we can all receive. Who in humility can say that they have no growth left to go? Or who in faith can feel that Christ cannot work through others in the church to help them grow? Or who, in awe of God's power, can claim that growth can no longer occur in their life because they're too sinful or unworthy to have that work done? In these last verses, Paul is showing the practical outworking of how we must all be about the task of working out our salvation. So we've come to the end of the passage. I'll go back and summarise what we've just looked at. Paul is calling us to obey what he asked us to achieve at the beginning of chapter 2. We are not to do this as a fulfilment. No, sorry. We are to do this as a fulfilment or working out of our salvation with responsibility or and humility. But it is God who enables us to desire and to action this task. We are to do this without complaining or arguing, clinging to the words of life. We will embody a Christ-like community that will shine out into the world that does not yet know him. This is the goal for which Paul laboured for. So what are some ways that we as a church can consider how to do this practically? How can we as a community help each other to grow and thereby fulfil what Paul has commanded. Firstly, seek and expect growth in your spiritual life. This can be formally, as I mentioned, but I'll go into more depth, formally through ideas like finding a mentor or an accountability partner if there are areas of sin in your life that you would like help to have victory over. Or you could seek coaching to grow in a ministry area that you're already involved in but that you want to get better at. I mentioned the fellowship of growth groups. These provide the encouragement through life's ups and downs and have been a great source of encouragement for me over many years. Or you could prayerfully consider a ministry apprenticeship where you'll learn from our current church leaders on how to potentially grow into a leadership role yourself. Or the really formal studying at the Bible College of South Australia. As the principal of the college says, why not? 
But probably what is more immediately tangible are the informal ways that you can be involved in this growth as a community. Some simple ones, not an exhaustive list, and I'm sure that as a community we'll come up with better ideas than what I could. Hosting people at home for a meal to encourage them. Seeking out and regularly praying for someone, for their work, family, study, or whatever they need encouragement in. Reading the Bible with someone 101, and then praying through the passage afterwards. Perhaps starting or joining a book club where you read through a Christian book and learn from each other as well as learning from the book. As I said, I'm sure there are other ideas and I'd like, my prayer is that as we grow as a community, we would come up with more ideas that are practical and helpful for our diversity to grow. These are all areas as a church, the plural you, that we can work on our salvation together in that we can build each other up, that we can be obedient to what Paul asked the Philippian church to be obedient to. So maybe you'll give, maybe you'll receive, and maybe you'll experience both. But get on board. We're in this with God. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you are a good God, that you have shown us your love, and shown us your power in your, the way that you've drawn us back into your family. I thank you that you don't leave us alone, that you continue to work in us and make us more into an image of your son. And I thank you that we can do that together, that you are a communal God that works in us individually but brings us together into community. I thank you for the blessing of community. I thank you for the blessing of church. And I pray that you would continue to enable us to be obedient to our calling and our purpose as your people in this world. Amen.